0: Welcome tonight, take your Bibles, join me if you will, in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. We're going to be looking at a text tonight. And uh, I just want to add that um, if you are so inclined, if you have your phone, if you're not one to to write with these utensils called pen and paper. Uh, You're more of the digital persuasion. Uh, We will have on the screen, if we don't know, oh, there it is, a little QR code. You can scan that thing. It'll send you straight to the notes in digital format, and you can take notes on your phone, your device, what have you. If you're watching at home, you can do that as well, and you can uh, save it as a PDF, send those notes to yourself. So we just want to provide every avenue that we can for people to follow along. But we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, tonight. This is in the middle of a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and we won't be studying the entire Sermon on the Mount tonight. That's a lot for one message, but hopefully someday we will be able to walk through the Sermon on the Mount together. I'm looking at a passage in this that is going to be centered on a topic that we're going to address this evening because we're in a series called Hot Potatoes. And we're speaking of that which churches tend to treat as a game of hot potato. You remember when you were a kid, you played hot potato, and you're trying to keep that ball moving. You don't want to be holding on to the ball when the music stops or the timer stops because then you're out. And so you you move it along. You get it going. You, You don't want to be holding on to that. Churches do the same thing with certain topics that are a little touchy, they're a little sensitive, they they might cause a little dissension, and churches don't like dissension, and so they don't talk about them very long if they talk about them at all, but we know that the Word of God is like a double-edged sword, and it is sharp, and it pierces to to, to the inner heart of man, and it is it is It is something that is valuable, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You believe that, church? And so it speaks to all issues of life, and so we're looking in this series at these controversial topics to see what the Word of God says about them, and we're going to look at one of those tonight. Last week, we started off with a very light topic, the topic of abortion, which, uh, which is not light. But tonight... Maybe not so controversial in the scope of society, but in the church, it can be a very, very difficult subject that we will address here momentarily. A few years ago, I graduated with my master's from, from Liberty University. That was where I did my undergrad, and I, I studied. I got my master's online. I went back to, to the campus that I had not been on uh, in 20 years to graduate in person, and it was amazing to go back to my old school and to see all of the building that was taking place and what God was doing there. It's always fun to go back to Lynchburg and and see what he's doing on Liberty Mountain. And I I remember when I was there, I noticed for the first time they had this beautiful tower in the center of campus, and in that tower was housed the School of Divinity, where they were training pastors and theologians and such. And you can go up that tower to the very top to the observation deck it's one of the tallest buildings in the region. You can look around, you can see the whole campus, you can see the whole city, you can see the Blue Ridge Mountains, which are beautiful. And as we've spent time in that observation deck, my wife and I, it was about time to go back down, and I hit the button on the elevator, and the doors open, and I find myself face to face with former President Jimmy Carter. No kidding, Jimmy Carter. Turns out he was the commencement speaker that weekend at, at our graduation. Now, President Carter's been in the news as of late. He has entered into hospice care, and so it would seem that he's not long for this earth. Uh, I, I believe from all I know that President Carter has a relationship with Jesus Christ, and so I rejoice in that for him. But he was our commencement speaker, and so I, here I am. I'm standing face-to-face with this, with this former president of the United States, and I just went, Mr. President, you know. And so he shook my hand. I'll tell you what was impressive about Jimmy Carter as I was able to talk with him very briefly. He and my wife uh, engaged in conversation. Uh, he's, he's, uh, you know, he, he goes way back. I mean, he was, man, he was, he was 93 when I met him. It's five years later. So, so the man is, is quite up there. And he precedes my time as an eligible voter, shall we say. I never had the privilege to vote against him. I mean, to vote for him. <laughs> Sometimes it just slips out. Anyway... But I'll tell you what, he and I wouldn't agree on everything, but where he impresses me, in addition to all the wonderful humanitarian things that he's done since leaving office, um, it impresses me that this is a man who has been faithfully married to the same woman for, I believe now, 77 years. Just astounding. And I got to think, how many current marriages are going to hit that mark? Not many, not many. Let me give you some statistics. According to the Forrest Institute of Professional Psychology, over 50% of first-time marriages will end in divorce. Over 50%. 67% of second marriages will end in divorce in America. And 75% of third marriages will end in divorce. Let me ask you, do we have a problem with marriage and the divorce rate in America, we do. And so tonight we're gonna talk about divorce. And we're gonna talk as well uh, by necessity about remarriage. And we're gonna talk about the biblical grounds for each of those things. And I will admit, no pastor is chomping at the bit to talk about this stuff, but we do trust the word of God. And so we believe that, that, that he wants us to preach the whole counsel of God, and it's going to be valuable. And I know that there are a number of you out there that have been touched by this subject. You've been touched by divorce. I know a lot of you are remarried. And so the odds of me getting out of here without offending somebody, not good not good. You know, I'm going to tick somebody off. I just am. And so that's why I've got a getaway car parked out back. Uh, But I do want you to know something. I got two jobs tonight and I'm going to do my best to be faithful to each of them. The first job is I got to be faithful to this book, the Bible. Okay. I love all of you. Many of you I know have have experienced this thing called divorce in your life. And I want to be sensitive to you. I would love to tell you what you want to hear, but I've got a boss that's, that's he's, he outranks you, quite frankly. And so my first obligation is to him. Number two, my second job is to be compassionate. Because we have a compassionate, gracious God of second chances, and you have my word that I'm going to seek to fulfill both obligations tonight. Would you pray with me as we dive in here in a moment? Heavenly Father, Lord, guide us as we open this tremendous book, and we look and we find truth, God, and truth is always loving. It's always loving to tell the truth. And so I pray that as we read your words, we will know that they come from your heart, which has nothing but love for us. And so we read them and we receive them. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let us look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, starting in verse 31. Here's what he says. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me give you kind of the surrounding context of this the previous section in Matthew 5 in this sermon Jesus is dealing with the concept of adultery in fact in in 521 he says you shall not commit adultery and if you study this text you'll see in Matthew 5 that the Lord is confronting the Pharisees and the scribes and he is rebuking them and he's saying that their standards of righteousness are inadequate and he is confronting a brand of legalism and legalism is a reality today. Now, we think we know what legalism is. We think we know what it is, you see. Uh, often when we hear that term, we think of a church that, that takes a hard stance on a moral issue. And so whenever somebody is, is uh, speaking out or, or digging in their heels on a moral issue, often we say, well, that's rather legalistic. Uh, that's actually not the definition of legalism, you see. Uh, Because in this context, the legalism that Jesus is dealing with is that these Pharisees were very narrowly defining the law in such a way as to justify immoral behavior. That was this brand of legalism. In other words, they would say, well, as, as long as we don't participate in the actual physical act of adultery, we're not really committing adultery, you see. And Jesus is responding to them, shooting holes in that to say, "Uh, I hate to burst your bubble, guys, but uh, if you have lusted in your heart, you have committed adultery. And this is what Jesus does. He always takes the law up a notch and he raises the bar. He goes not to the letter of the law. He goes to the heart of man. And he says, if you have anger in your heart toward a brother, toward a sister, you are guilty of murder. If you have lust in your heart, if you have ever looked lustfully upon a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And so this is the theme that he is continuing on in verse 31. He says, it was also said. That's what we read. It was also said. Now, it was also said does not strictly mean according to the Old Testament. Sometimes he says it is written and he's referring to the Old Testament. Here, that's not what he means. It was also said means you've been taught something. You have heard someone say something. This is what you have been led to believe in the religious circles in which you have been brought up. This is what some rabbis have told you. And we begin to see a pattern. He says, it has been said, and then he says, but I say. Okay, and there's a pattern here. And you see this formula throughout this text. Here's what you've been taught, but I'm saying to you. In other words, man says, but God says. And this is the pattern, okay? And this is what we've got going on today. Man's always got his perspective, but we've always got to go back to the word. And that's the whole point of this series, folks, is because man says a lot of things, but we want to know what God's word says, and so here's what we're going to talk about in your notes, the difference between man's mind and God's mind regarding, specifically tonight, divorce. And that's what we're going to look at. And the first thing that I want, to, I want you to see, the first difference in your notes is that man says, legally, breaking a marital commitment is a simple matter. It's a simple matter. Just to repeat verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. See how simple that sounds? Very simple matter. You wanna divorce your wife? Just do the paperwork, give her a certificate of divorce. Now, where did man get this idea? Well, these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes, they got it from the rabbis. Where did the rabbis get it? They got it because they are interpreting the Old Testament. They're looking at Deuteronomy 24. Here's what Deuteronomy 24 says. It's, this is the law. It's Moses. He says, a man takes a wife and marries her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So, from this we see that this concept uh, of a certificate of divorce that's divorce papers many of us have signed divorce papers right you know uh, he he served her the papers, she served him the paper yeah they signed the papers right that's this is where that comes from right here where did that concept originate well apparently it started with moses does that surprise you does that feel a little weird To you. If you grew up in church and you've often heard God hates divorce, it's wrong to get a divorce. You know what what God's brought together, He wants no one to separate. Does it stun you to know that the whole concept of divorce papers originated with Moses? It started with Moses. But when you understand the context, things become a little clearer here. You see, in Moses' day, the children of Israel, what were they doing? When he was writing this, where were they? They were wandering through the wilderness. They had been newly liberated, relatively speaking, from from, uh, Egypt. And so they've been wandering in the wilderness. How long? Forty years they're wandering. Moses is leading them. And over four decades, Moses observes a problem. There's a problem emerging. They're in the desert. They have not found the promised land yet. Passions are running hot tensions are rising and there are some guys kicking their wives out there's some trouble brewing in marital relationships and these guys are abandoning their wives there were some flare ups and they are fighting and these guys are kicking their wives out of the tent they're kicking them to the curb or the sand as it were all right And Moses realizes this is a problem because in that culture, a divorced person could not remarry, you see. And so you've got a massive homeless problem arising among these women who are being kicked out of their homes by their husbands. And in that time, in that culture, women did not largely have a skill that was honed uh, by which they could provide for themselves. And so with no home, no shelter, they're in the desert, likely they're gonna starve to death or they're going to die from exposure. And so Moses says, we got to do something about this. This is not right. And so he introduces this concept of a certificate of divorce. And this is not an endorsement of divorce. It is born out of compassion for women, you see. And so Moses, his solution, he says, guys, if you're gonna be so hard-hearted, you're gonna be so cold as to kick your wives out of the house, you must give her a certificate of divorce so that this abandoned woman can legally remarry so that she doesn't, you know, so she can find another family so she can continue to uh, have, be provided for, you know, so she doesn't, you know, die. And it's as simple as that. In other words, this, this divorce certificate, it did not originate as an affirmation on the dissolution of a marriage. It was a wise and compassionate move on the part of Moses to protect women. That is the context. That's how we need to understand this. And by the way, he was led by the Holy Spirit to do this because does God want these women to die? He does not. And so it was done to alleviate the problem of homelessness and eventual eventual death for these abandoned women. But by the time of Jesus' day, what had happened was, the whole concept of the certificate of divorce had become perverted. It had become corrupted. And and the culture in Jesus' day had concocted this certificate to be a right for all men. It was not about the women, it had become about the men. And so you had two schools of thought that had arisen on this matter, and they were rabbinical schools of thought. So you had a rabbi in your notes, the first school of thought, a rabbi by the name of Shammai. And Shammai's thinking regarding this certificate of divorce was in your notes that a man can divorce his wife for any reason, any reason, whatever you want. And so they take Deuteronomy 24, they read that word indecency. If he's found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. That term indecency, that just means whatever you want it to mean. Anything that you don't like about your wife, that's indecency, and it is justification for you to write her so that you can be rid of her in that, for that reason uh, on its own right there. So whatever it was, okay? Like, for example, if, if, if a man felt that his wife had gotten older and she'd lost her looks, that's indecency, and that's grounds for divorce. Are you... Are you are you feeling the tensions rise in here a little bit? man? are you feeling that? You can feel that, guys? Okay. Just want to see if that was just me. Uh, another reason, if she burns the food when she's cooking, that's indecency. You can, you can uh, kick her out, okay? If she, and I love this, th- these are not, I'm not making these up. These are written down in rabbinical writings, okay? Another reason is if she talks so loud, you could hear her outside the tent, You could be rid of her, you could dump her. Gone, okay? Don't get any ideas, guys, okay? But whatever reason you come up with, you're justified. That's this school of thought. And it's not hard to come up with reasons to be done with one another because, well, I know this is gonna come as a shock, but men and women are different. Is that true? Are we different? We are, it's like we're from different planets sometimes, isn't it? I mean, a few years back, my, my son uh, broke his arm. He was a freshman in high school, and he had a little accident. Um, it was near the end of the school year. Uh, they were pretty much done with classwork, and so there was a lot of free time during the day, and they let the class go outside, and there was a field adjacent to the building, and the boys went out, and they're, they're hanging out in this field. And they come upon an old tractor tire and they turn this tractor tire upright, and it's a big old tire, and they put a kid inside the tire. And they're rolling this tire, and this kid's just kinda spinning end over end on this tire. My son gets on top of a moving tire. And starts backpedaling like, yep, and he's trying to impress his friends. He loses his balance and he falls off the top of this tower and he tries to break his fall with his arm and he ends up breaking his arm with the fall. All right. And I think that's how it happened. That's the best I can gather. I wasn't there to see it, but that's what I heard. So he ends up in a cast and a sling. And so we had to explain uh, you know how this happened, because we'd encounter people and be like, well, what What happened? And so we're like, well, and it, we're, we're trying to tell the story in a way that makes sense. And it never fails. If we're telling the story to a couple, a man and a woman, as I'm telling the story, the woman is just incredulous. She cannot believe this. She's like, wait, what? Like, she can't even, fa- why would they even be, why would anybody, I mean, she just can't even get it. We, we're telling the guy, and we get as far as and they found a tractor tire. And he goes, oh, yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't even have to finish the story. Like, he knows where we're going. Men and women are just different, okay? So we think differently. It's not hard to come up with a reason to disagree. And so the rabbis are like, you're going to come up with a reason. Just make sure you give her a certificate. That's all you got to worry about. Just do the paperwork. You'll be okay In God's eyes and that is the twisted thinking now there's another school of thought in your notes number two there's a rabbi named Hillel Hillel and he said that a man can divorce his wife only for adultery that's the only reason they take that term indecency and they interpret it very narrowly this is sexual immorality This is adultery, unfaithfulness, none of that other stuff, that's petty stuff, this is the reason. Now that sounds a whole lot more like what churches have taught uh, as I was growing up, even though there's all different definitions of adultery in people's minds, but Jesus would actually come closer to this definition right here than the other one, but he basically says, I'll take it a step further, because this is what Jesus does. Uh, Now first of all, hear me, Jesus understood Moses' intent. He understood that this was about the protection of women, to look after the interests of these abandoned women, and he has rightfully sniffed out the corruption. What these Pharisees and and Sadducees have done over the years, it's it's become about what man says. And you'll notice in both of these philosophies, even though you might agree with one more than the other, there's a problem with both of them. What's the problem? A man. A man can X, Y, Z doesn't even mention this isn't even a a right for women in the eyes of that culture it is reserved for the man got nothing to do with the women and so they flipped the whole original intent on its head they have perverted it and they've created a right for the husband it was never intended to create and so they, they make it a very selfish thing a very chauvinistic thing and of course what's our formula man says God says so God says, you might think this is just a legal issue. You might just think that this is about mere paperwork, but here's what it's really about in your notes. God says, spiritually, breaking a marital commitment is an incredibly serious matter. This is not a simple matter. It's a serious matter. It's not a, it's not a, uh, oh, uh, it's not a logical thing. It's a spiritual thing, you understand, okay? And so... He responds to them in verse 32. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? What, is it, what does makes her commit adultery mean? The Greek here, it's in the passive voice. She is made to commit adultery. Uh, there's, a lit- there's a translation out there that says that he, he adulterizes her. He adulterizes her. Uh, There are two ideas. There are two views on this text. I will tell you straight up, this is not an easy text. It's not an easy text. But here's the first view in your notes. The first view is that for the divorced woman, remarriage is adultery. That's that's the first view. And, And that actually is kind of the classic view. That's kind of the traditional view in churches. I mean, I've actually heard that. I've heard it spoken in churches that if you get remarried after you're divorced, God sees that as adultery. Uh, you know, so the woman, here she is, she's in a situation, uh, she's been kicked out, she, she needs provision, she gets married again, but according to this view, she still married that first guy. And so she marries another guy, now she's got two husbands, that's polygamy, that's adultery, and that is violating God's law. Now there's a problem with this view. The problem is, where did the permission to remarry originate? It originated with Moses. Is Moses going to authorize these ladies to do something that dishonors the Lord? Well, no, no, of course not. And so I don't flatly buy this whole remarriage is adultery thing uh, on the basis of that alone. I would gravitate toward the second view. Take a look at the second view in your notes. Uh, it's this, to divorce a woman unjustly stigmatizes her. It stigmatizes her. Uh, it puts her in the light of an immoral woman. Uh, in fact, some Bible translations have the word stigmatizes in it. I don't remember which translation this is, but uh, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity stigmatizes her. Let me ask you, is, is there a stigma attached to, to divorce? There is, isn't there? Maybe less than there used to be. Uh, I, I think culturally, it's, it's got, it carries less of a stigma than it once did. But there definitely is a stigma. I mean, imagine you're speaking with someone. You're talking to a person of, of a certain age. They're not all that old, perhaps. And, and they're, very, they're a very sharp person. They present quite well. You discover that they have been divorced. Uh, where does your mind go? I mean, we're human, right or wrong. We, we, we think, huh wonder what happened there. Like, it happens, right? Do we do, we do that? We do that sometimes because we're human. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that's not fair for us to do that. But there is a natural stigma that sort of surrounds people who have been through this. And so if you were to take that and multiply it by a thousand, that's what it would be like in Jesus' day. And it was even worse in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, King David had some children he had uh, he had many children. he had a son among many named Amnon, and he had a daughter named Tamar. Now Amnon was a bit of a sick puppy. he lusted after his own sister Tamar and so he devised a plan he was going to get her into his uh, into his uh, his, his room under the guise of being ill and he sends for her to come and take care of him and while she's there, he grabs her and he tries to force himself on her. She begs him not to. He does it anyway. After he takes advantage of her, rapes her, he does what only a pig would do. He, he just sends her away. He kicks her out. And she begs him not to. Now why? Why? Would she beg him to keep her there? Why would she want to stay with her rapist? And it has to do with the culture in which they lived because the stigma of being rejected in that day was, was, uh, it was a social death sentence No man would ever want to marry her if she were rejected. And so she begs him, even though he has violated her, even though he's her brother, she begs him not to kick her out. Well, he does it anyway. He bolts the door after her. It's a sadistic story, and we see the, the depression and the sadness and the depths to which Tamar goes. She, she rends her garments. She pours ashes upon her head. Later, we see Amnon uh, you know, get his, which is rather gratifying, but it, it shows you the stigma present in the Old Testament, and it's not right, and Jesus is saying, we're going to have a new ethic the protection of a woman won't come because of a, of a certificate. I'm going to develop a new ethic. The protection of the woman will come because God's people will be above reproach and they will do their duty when it comes to marriage. And when they marry, they will say, till death do us part. And they will take these vows seriously. And this is the new ethic that he institutes here. Marriage is about two becoming One. One flesh. Jesus actually didn't talk about grounds for divorce. He he doesn't. He doesn't really talk about grounds for divorce in specificity. Are there grounds for divorce? Yes. Yes, there are. Are we going to talk about those? Well, hold your horses. Just hold your horses, okay? But the Pharisees are going to try to trip Jesus up, and they're going to ask him about uh, divorce and, and remarriage in Matthew 19. So take a look here. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus doesn't really engage them much on that uh, because there are a few things that we need to understand first. These are essential things. In verse four, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so Jesus goes back to the original Design of God concerning marriage. Where do we find it? In Genesis with Adam and Eve. And so he goes back to the original blueprint, okay? Have you not read that God made them male and female? By the way, that is an affirmation of God's design for marriage as being between one man and one woman. All right? And so don't miss that. Very important. And then in verse five, he says, And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so here's what we need to understand in your notes, is that Jesus' view of marriage is the highest view possible. It's the highest view possible. He takes it very, very seriously. He wants us to see marriage the way he sees it, the way God sees it. Marriage is about two becoming one. It's about God joining the two together. This is not like getting a pacemaker, okay? Where you just, you get opened up and you stick one in there and every now and then you swap it out, you put a new one in there. No, this is more like a liver transplant. You are taking something that is not inanimate, you are not taking something that is man-made and, and uh, personality-less. You are taking something that is viable, that is essential, that is living, and you are having it be melded into your body. Some of you are like, liver transplant, huh? Well, I need, I need some anti-rejection medication because my body is rejecting that liver. We're having some trouble. Well, just remember who the surgeon is. God is your surgeon. Does this surgeon make mistakes? He does not, he does not. You, you can take out a pacemaker, you can do that. You try taking out a liver, uh, there is some evis- evisceration that happens, okay? It, it, is, it is not flippant, it is not done without cause. And there's a reason that marriage is the very first institution that God created. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he points out that the first human relationship in the garden was not uh, you know, a man and a son, It was not a mother and a daughter. It was not a man and his bro, his buddy. It was a man and a woman. This is the first human relationship that we see. So marriage is the first institution that God creates. There's a reason that the first recorded miracle of Jesus' ministry takes place at a wedding where he turns the water into wine at Cana. There is a reason that the relationship between Christ and the church is described as a bridegroom And a bride. There is a reason that the reunion of Christ and his church one day in the future, eschatologically, is called the marriage of the Lamb. Marriage matters to God. He created it, it's special to him. He doesn't want anybody messing with it, misrepresenting it, redefining it. It's his, it's not ours to muck with and to cheapen. You say, okay, got it. God hates divorce. God values marriage. I got it. What about remarriage? Okay, we always jump to that, right? We just want to know, what what, what are we permitted to do after we get divorced? Okay, I'm going to get there. One more story. There's an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. Hosea, he's got a wife. Her name is Gomer. Gomer's a prostitute. She breaks Hosea's heart over and over and over. She sleeps with man after man after man after man. She is uh, promiscuous to the nth degree. Now, biblically, did Hosea have grounds to divorce her? Yes. Yes, he did. He did have grounds because of her sexual immorality, okay? I mean, heck, he could have killed her and nobody would have batted an eye in that culture. I'm not saying we should do that. But back then, nobody would have blinked. They would have been like, I get it. They would have, but he doesn't do that. He remains faithful to her. He keeps on loving her. He pays all her debts as they come up. And she continues to break his heart until she ends up so depraved, so immoral, so in debt that she puts herself on the, on the slave auction block, so in debt she has become. And who is it that shows up and purchases her? Hosea why because he loves her Hosea's relationship with Gomer is a picture it's a picture of of God's relationship to Israel Israel was unfaithful to her to her God who entered into covenant with her an everlasting covenant a promise that he would never break it was unconditional and Israel repeatedly cheats on God Israel lusts after idol upon idol. Israel breaks God's heart time and time and time again, and yet God still, throughout all of Scripture, even though He would discipline Israel, He still loved Israel. Loves Israel today. Has He, has he given up on Israel? No. Will He keep His promise that He made to Israel? Yes, He absolutely will. This is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. Guess what? Not only does God have a relationship and a covenant with Israel, he's got a relationship and a covenant with you. Do you ever break his heart? Do you ever cheat on God? Do you ever rebel against God? Do you ever go after the idols that this world has to offer in whatever form they may take? Absolutely. Has he abandoned you? Has he given up on you? Is he still faithful to you? Or has he moved on from you? He has not. And there's a reason for that, And in your notes, your marriage is to be an earthly picture of God's covenant relationship with you. That's what your marriage is to be. Just like Hosea and Gomer's uh, relationship is a picture of God and Israel, your marriage is the picture that God often uses uh, to describe Christ's relationship with his people. You understand? And I I don't say this stuff to be flippant about any pain that you have experienced in your marriage, okay? I only say it to draw your attention to the magnificence that God places on marriage in this marvelous book. There's a magnitude in the meaning of marriage. God keeps his covenant, Christ keeps his covenant. We have a covenant that we enter into with one another and it's called marriage and it's sacred Now, you may say, well, what if there's abuse? You know, my my husband beats me, pastor. Should I stay in that covenant when my husband beats me? Let me be very, 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 very clear. I want to be unequivocal about this. If you are being abused, if you are being beaten physically in your marriage, if, if you're in physical danger in any sense in your marriage, get out of there. Get out of there. That is not God's will. And if you need help, you let us know. God does not want you to suffer physically at the hands of your spouse. Now, please know, you tell us about stuff like that. We are legally bound to report such things. We are required to do that by law, but we wanna be of help to you and we know it is not God's will for you to suffer physically in a marital relationship. Abuse has no place in the will of God, okay? I'll be very clear about that. All right, now let's talk about remarriage. Let it not be said I'm a chicken, okay? Let's say you're divorced. You want to know, does the Bible allow for remarriage? Do do I have biblical grounds to get married again? Some of you are already remarried. It's your second marriage. You'd like to be affirmed in that if possible. Uh, You want to know, am, am I validated in my remarriage, my present marriage, having already been previously married. Well, let's see what the Bible says, okay? Let's do that. Let's look right now. Regarding remarriage after divorce, the Bible says that you can't do it. Everybody have a great night. Take care. You're loved. Appreciate it. No. <laughs> All right. All right, let's look at this, Okay. Despite the fact that the plexiglass shield I ordered did not come on time. Um, (laughs) Let me say first that while there are biblical allowances for divorce, okay, Scripture is not explicit in allowing for remarriage after divorce. It's not explicit. What does that mean? That means it's not crystal clear. It's not crystal clear. Uh, That said, I believe a couple of cases can be made. All right, And there may be more than just a couple, uh, but I can't be dogmatic about more than two. Okay, And I don't know if I would say I'm dogmatic. I think I'm logically drawing a conclusion. Uh, but I feel, I feel confident about two of these. Again, there may be more. I'm going to speak primarily on these two. And I want you to see that these are tied, these conditions are tied to the biblical grounds for divorce. So if you're unclear on the biblical grounds for divorce... Uh, they are connected to the biblical grounds for remarriage. So we're going to get that all settled right here. So just, just to repeat that, the case to be made for biblical grounds for remarriage are linked to the biblical grounds for divorce. Everybody follow on that? Okay. Two cases. In other words, if you come to me as a pastor and you ask me to officiate your wedding and you've been married before, We're going to have a conversation and I'm going to be looking to see if your divorce involves these scenarios before uh, agreeing to marry you for the second time. And the first one in your notes is unrepentant adultery, unrepentant adultery. And I hope it's obvious that we're not talking about the unrepentant adulterer getting remarried. Okay. I hope that's clear. Uh, if you are the adulterer, this does not apply to you. It applies to the one who was wronged, who was sinned against in that relationship. Here's what Jesus says in our text. I want you to look at Matthew 19. The Pharisees have come to him. They're asking him about divorce. In Matthew 19:9, 9, he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery commits adultery. Okay, so in that statement, we have what's called an exception clause. You've got an exception clause. He says, except for sexual immorality. Now, if you remove that phrase, this becomes a much stricter statement. You take that phrase out of there, what do you got? You got whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty narrow. That's pretty narrow. So this exception clause changes everything. So what I see here that whoever uh, divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, what I see there is that by implication, there is a window for remarriage for the believer who was uh, cheated on, who was wronged, sinned against by an unfaithful spouse. You could say, well, that, you know, I, it's not, it's not, it doesn't exactly say that, Pastor Scott. You, you can't really be dogmatic that you can remarry after adultery. Well, I can't be dogmatic that you can't remarry either. Okay. And so I'm not going to draw a hard line where God's word does not draw a hard line. I think that would be unwise. And I think it is quite logical that if you have been sinned against with regard to adultery, that is a justification to, to, to divorce and therefore not only to divorce, but to remarry. Now I want to make a very important disclaimer here. Okay? Just because you have an out does not mean you should take it. You with me? All right? Because if you, if you have been sinned against in, in, in relation to adultery, I want you to understand that, that the justification in your notes, I said unrepentant adultery. Unrepentant adultery. Meaning? Time and time and time again, as a pastor, I have witnessed couples where one member of that that married couple relationship, one member has cheated against the other. They've they've committed adultery, okay? But they, they repent of that. They own that. They have confessed their sin. They have cut off the adulterous relationship altogether. And the other person forgives them And they are both committed to healing that marriage. And they wanna see God do a miracle in their marriage and they do the hard work. And God honors that and he does a miracle in that marriage. And today, I, I could point to several, in fact, some of my dearest best friends in the world fit this scenario, they are stronger and closer than they've ever been in their entire marriage. Can that happen? That can absolutely happen. God can do a work that you are completely not expecting that you can't even imagine, especially in the hurt of the aftermath of adultery. And so we don't wanna miss out on a miracle of God just because we feel like we've got a biblical grounds to bolt. Does that make sense? And so do you have the grounds? Yes. But it then becomes not, not just a moral issue or or a freedom issue, it becomes a wisdom issue. And so prayer needs to go into this. Do you follow, you with me? All right, second reason, second justification for remarriage in your notes. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 7. As I've said, Jesus did not say a whole lot about uh, divorce and remarriage. Paul kind of picks up where Jesus leaves off. And he's a whole lot more verbal on this stuff, okay? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking in verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And so what he's saying there, in, in other words, is that he's saying Jesus didn't talk about this, but I'm going to, okay? okay. He, he clarifies, this is not the Lord, but me. This is Paul talking. I'm okay with that. We should all be okay with that because we believe that all scripture is inspired of God, amen? It's, it's all authoritative, including the words of Paul. Just because Jesus doesn't talk about it and Paul does, it's still God's word, amen? So he says, uh, I'm saying that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, so far, what's he saying? He's saying that if your spouse is a non-Christian they don't love Jesus, but they love you. And they want to stay with you. You stick with them. That's, that's what he's saying. You say, but, but we have completely different worldviews. Doesn't matter. You say, but I love Jesus. And, and he or, or she doesn't, they don't, they don't love Jesus. It, it doesn't matter. They, they love you. You say, but we're unequally yoked. Which I love that. I love when people who want to get divorced are suddenly, they're suddenly hung up on the concept of being equally yoked. It's like, where was that when you got married? But uh, I, w- I would say to them, look, according to Paul, you have entered into a covenant relationship via marriage. God wants you to honor that covenant because covenants mean something. Furthermore, as Paul goes on here, here's what we're going to see. You are the best chance that unbelieving spouse has of coming to faith in Jesus. And not just that spouse, but any kids that are in the mix as well. Here's what he says in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And so there are considerations for the whole family that you, as the lone believer in that family, you have a witness to that family that they would not have exposure to if you separate. And, and your, your thoughts should not just be about your spouse, should also be about the kids. Have you noticed kids always get thought of last? Let me say that again so it's clear. Have you noticed that kids always get thought of last in these scenarios? Man, that burns me up. It really, when we don't think about children, really riles me up. But here's what he says. In verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so okay in such cases the brother or sister in other words the believing spouse is not enslaved okay is not enslaved now I think it's hilarious that Paul is uh, putting marriage in the context of slavery I just think that's kind of (laughs) funny he's saying if they leave okay they're an unbeliever and they take off He says, let it be so. You're not enslaved, meaning you're not bound. Logically then, there is a freedom to remarry under those circumstances. You say, well, it doesn't say that. How can you be sure of that? Look, if you're not bound, that means that, that you are free. To be bound is the opposite of being free, okay? If you're not bound, to the marital relationship, it's broken. You have been set free from that. That implies a freedom to remarry. So it's biblical grounds for divorce, therefore it's biblical grounds for remarriage. What good is that freedom if you can't remarry? Otherwise, if you couldn't remarry, you would still be bound. You would still be bound. Now, same disclaimer as last time. There's a wisdom issue that comes into play because I know some people, Christians, Christians, their spouse has abandoned them. They say, I can't handle this Jesus thing. You're nuts. I'm out of here. They take off. The believing spouse is free. They're justified in the divorce. They're justified if they choose to remarry, but they don't. They don't. They wait. They wait until the unbelieving spouse who has left either remarries or dies. Now, why would they wait? The same reason a spouse who has been cheated upon forgives the other spouse and works on that marriage. They're looking for God to do a miracle, but you've got the added incentive of of their love for that unbelieving spouse and their desire and their hope for the eternal condition of that unbelieving spouse. Not only do they love them, but they want to see them in glory one day. And they're praying for a miracle that God would do a work and restore that, okay? And they want to faithfully honor God and be above reproach in the meantime. Are they justified to get remarried? Yes. But they have prayed and determined in their heart not to. So that is a disclaimer that I just want to put out there. Because some matters are not strictly moral issues. There are wisdom issues in there. And I love that there is a permission granted in this book. I think that is beautiful. But the wisdom is also there for us to pray over and enter into the wisdom of God to do what he and he alone can foresee and coordinate and cause to come into being, okay? Those are the two cases that I have found that I can present with any kind of detail and explanation tonight, there are other nuances I understand that in various relationships some of you out there you may have some nuances you may have some conditions you may have some issues that I have not touched on tonight and you want to know the answer to those there's no way I can get to the countless nuances of every marital relationship in one sermon okay but I want you to know something this is not a closed conversation this discussion is not ended if you would like to to bring those up, talk with me about them or talk to a pastor about them. You can call the church, you can contact us. Be happy to sit down, love to hear your story, find out what's going on, see what applies to you. And so we can have those conversations, okay? That's what we're here for. But what I'm hearing from the word here is that God values marriage, we must value marriage as well. I hope you're not hearing a condemnation against remarriage or a condemnation against divorce so much as you're hearing the high view the high regard and value that God places on marriage. Now, let me, let me just look at one other issue here in verse 33 of your original notes in Matthew, your original text. Let's go back to Matthew 5. And in verse 33, we're gonna talk about oaths for just a minute. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, okay, do you, do you notice the pattern is back? Again, you have heard, But I say, you see, man says, God says, okay? What does he say? Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Here's what was going on. In Jesus' day, men were taking oaths right and left. They were swearing oaths by heaven. They were swearing oaths by creation. They were swearing oaths by Jerusalem, the holy city. Why were they doing this? They're swearing by these things. Why? They were trying to give weight to their words. They were trying to add magnitude to their oaths uh, by swearing by something greater than themselves to draw attention so they get people's attention. It was part of their culture. The problem was the content of their oath had nothing to do with God. And so for them to swear by God, to swear by the holy city, to swear by God's creation, to swear by heaven, uh, it was drawing attention to what they wanted to say. And and so they would stick very closely to their very well-worded oath so that they would not incriminate themselves later. And they spoke in a very kind of lawyerly way to that end. And according to Jesus, here's what man says in your notes. Man says, just be careful not to perjure yourself and do what you propose to do. We see this in, in, in marriage vows sometimes. We see this in prenuptial agreements sometimes. In man's perspective on marriage, there are parameters that they put in place and they're very specific not to violate those parameters. And they leave themselves Exit strategies and they leave themselves and out. But here's what God says, don't take an oath at all. And he gives all of these reasons why. And what he's really saying in your notes, God says, be connected to me. And walk in that identity. He says, be connected to me. Stop taking these silly human oaths. Stop swearing by heaven or by earth or by the city or all that. Don't involve me in your human logic and all these things that you came up with. Those are your words. They're not my words. Don't invoke my name in that. People who want to get divorced, often you'll hear that, especially if they're a Christian, they'll say, well, I've really prayed about it. Oh, have you? You've prayed about it. And yet you won't hear any of the biblical justifications. It would just be, well, I've, I've got peace. I've got peace about this. Uh, well, I don't know who you're praying to. If you don't have the biblical justifications, and you're going to proceed with something that God says don't do. And it, it's out of the, 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 the parameters of Scripture. You didn't get that peace from God. You didn't get that. And so he says, walk in your identity. Do as I have instructed you to do, empowered you to do. When you enter into an oath, you, you do so in accordance with, with my word, not your word. And I live through you. And I am in relationship with that other person through you. Nowhere is an oath more important than in the vow that we make in marriage, where we stand before man and God in a ceremony and commit our lives to this other person that God has brought to us. And we unite and two become one in this institution that he created. And the, the vows that we make are sacred. I was officiating at a wedding. I was planning to officiate at a wedding one time. This couple comes to me and they go, we want to write our own vows. And I go, that's great. Yeah, just write them and send them to me. Let's, let's look at them together. Now, she was a, a preschool teacher. And so they decided together that they wanted to write their vows in the style and uh, language of Dr. Seuss. Yeah. And and so it was kind of an inside joke and it was sort of frivolous and fun, but it was it was uh it was a little fluffy, you know? There wasn't a lot of meat there. There wasn't much weight to it. I don't even remember how what it was exactly or how it would go. I I will love you on a log. I will love you with a frog. I don't know. <laughs> but I encouraged them, you know, not to do that. I, I, I kind of got them back to the Bible a little bit. I got them back to some commitment, some principles in there, some forever. And uh, it, they, what they came up with meant something. And it's many, many years later and they're, they're still together. And, and that's the institution of marriage. There's to be gravity there. There's to be gravity. And you are to be a picture of Christ's commitment to his bride. To the world. I'm leaving you with this question in your notes. How does the value that you assign to marriage represent Jesus to the world? Do, do you openly value marriage in such a way that it, it has a testimony? Wouldn't that be amazing if every Christian couple saw their relationship as a testimony to the world and that people could come to faith in Christ in part based on the testimony of your marriage? Can God use that? I believe that he can. Now, tonight, some of you in here, you you may have felt a little condemned by by some of the things that I've said, and I'm sorry, that's not my intent. Um, Maybe you're here today, and and you're like, well, I'm I'm divorced, and I recognize according to what you said that I didn't have biblical justification to get divorced. Maybe you're saying, you know, I'm I'm remarried, and I, I now realize I wasn't, biblically justified to get divorced in the first place, and now I'm remarried, what do I do? Well, don't contemplate leaving your current spouse to go back to your first spouse. <laughs> don't do that. That's not God's will, okay? He wants, you, he wants you to be in a healthy marriage now. Whatever your marriage is now, God wants that to be a successful, healthy marriage marriage okay because you've got some hurdles you you heard the statistics there's some challenges okay that's reality but god he doesn't he doesn't want you to split up he wants you to survive he wants you to honor him in the situation that you're in you know uh billy graham used to say you can't unscramble eggs <laughs> but with god's help you can make some dang good scrambled eggs All right, so that's our prayer and that's what we need to work toward. And there may be some here today who who say, well, I'm divorced, I didn't have biblical grounds and therefore I don't have grounds to get remarried. So I I guess there's no hope for me. Well, first of all, let's not confuse remarriage with hope. Okay, let's not do that. The limits that God may be placing on your life right now maybe to protect you from a misery far worse than what you thought you had before so you got to trust god number one you trust god okay but again i want to reiterate if you want to if you want to talk more about your situation i'm here other pastors are here let's talk Folks, we serve a gracious God. We serve a God who loves you. He wants what's best for your life and he wants you to see your future the way he sees it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you have modeled faithfulness for us. Lord, when I, when I think about the ways that I've, I've failed from time to time as a spouse. God, I just, I continually look back to the original blueprint, of the great bridegroom. And God, I pray that we can all do that because there's no greater faithfulness than what you demonstrate in your love toward us, God, as we let you down time and time and time again. But God, you, you've created this divine institution of marriage for a reason, and so we enter into it. It is a gift to us But it's also a tool that you use to communicate your love for the world. And so use my marriage, use every marriage in this room, God, to to testify to the love of Jesus Christ and those he wants to save, that we might be in relationship, an unbreakable covenant with you. And I pray that you would would speak healing and peace to those who have been wounded uh, by devastating relationships in the past, God, who have experienced brokenness. Would you bring them through healing and restoration even now and uh, show them that they are valuable and precious to you in whatever phase of life they're in right now and that you have a beautiful future for them and you want to use them for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.